0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Camilla Conn about her book, Mental Capacity and Relationship, Decision-Making, Dialogue and Autonomy. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. I'm actually really lucky and pleased to speak to Camilla because it's like the second time I've had the chance to speak to her, so you can also listen to the other interview, um, which is also on our website, about her other book that she co-wrote with Alex rux King. Just to tell you a little bit about Dr. Camilia Kong, she's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck at the University of London. She's the principal investigator of the project Judging Values and Participation in Mental Capacity Law. Camilia is a moral and political philosopher with research expertise on medical legal conceptualisation of mental capacity, the ethics of psychiatry and psychiatric genomics, and the hermenics, sorry, hermeneutics and phenomenology of mental disorder. Camelia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jane. It's a Again. pleasure. To, yeah, no, it's the pleasure's all mine, really. Um, so, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Mental Capacity and Relationship? Um, So,
2: as you mentioned, my background is in moral and political philosophy and uh, my my PhD thesis really looked at um, theories of practical reasoning in the tradition of moral philosophy. And once I finished my thesis, I was really interested in just kind of continuing um, this long-standing interest in how we conceptualize reasoning, how we conceptualize agency, and so I was a very lucky recipient of the British Academy Postdoctoral Fellowship to write this book. Um, and it was just really to try to extend my interest in this area of practical reasoning and agency to, um, you know, kind of medical juridical issues. I'm particularly interested in um, how we understand those contrast cases in the philosophical tradition, um, those cases which are considered non-ideal. We tend to think about rationality and practical reasoning and agency in these ideal terms. And so people with impairments of some kind with disabilities are always seen as falling outside this circle of these ideal conditions. And so I think one of the things that has emerged and, um, and, and this book has tapped into is this kind of longstanding interest in how we can have a more inclusive philosophical account, which means that, you know, individuals with different forms of coping, different forms of knowing the world and engaging with the world are not seen as somehow outliers of our, what is you know, what we might considered to be worthy of respect, worthy of validation, worthy of of understanding. And so that's sort of how the book really emerged.
1: And I actually really love that about the book because you do tackle all of these really difficult and complex issues that are sort of, you know, like um, in law and legislation, both domestically and then also in respect of, say, for example, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. you know the sort of more obvious cases I think are more easily solvable but it's these really difficult cases that there isn't a simple solution and you know the laws don't really seem to fit so I really did enjoy that about the book and how you applied both philosophy and law um to some very real feeling cases now I want to just go to with where you open the book about problems with mental capacity um, and so that's the title of the first chapter And so in this part, mental capacity is contextualised in the universal importance of autonomy, but notwithstanding its significance, you write that the right to decision-making has only been extended to people with impaired mental capacity fairly recently. Now, in this space, you see, you raise this sort of seemingly contradictory tension, and I think this comes back to this idea of hard cases. So on the one hand, the law, and I mean, please correct me, um, if I've misunderstood, but the law places great significance on a person's ability to make decisions based on their mental capacity, even if this means that at times decision-making capacity may require support from others. But at the same time, there's this gap in the recognition of how relationships influence mental capacity and the decision-making process. Now, in providing somewhat of a working framework for for the book, can you describe how legal practice pulls in opposite directions in this sense? That is between... What you describe as interpersonal source of capacity, and also the intrapersonal source of capacity.
2: So I think that um, I think it probably goes back to the UN Convention, um, and, and really, and also the kind of interplay between the, the the UN CRPD and mental capacity regimes like the one that is in England and Wales, um, and and I think that. This kind these tensions arise in both sets of, of laws, really, or you know, and convention, in the convention and um, and the the Mental Capacity Act in England and Wales. So the, the intrapersonal dimension of capacity really emerges in our kind of functional accounts of capacity, where there's an emphasis on what is your internal process of reasoning? Um, What is your deliberative process and how do you express your reasons to others? And so there's a lot of emphasis on mental capacity and decisional capacity being within one's head. So in that respect, it's kind of an intrapersonal dimension, which is supposedly tracked by the functional test. And um, where you see the CRPD... They, they re- reject this account, and, and, and rightly so, because they emphasise about how disability is a construction of society. It's, it's reinforced by kind of the, the, um, the barriers that are created in society and our, our political structures and our, you know, sociocultural structures, etc., our economic structures. Um, and they also make provisions about how important it is to have supports in the, the, um, in, in this account. However, um, there is also a strong emphasis on that intrapersonal autonomy, that person, that, that the individual as the locale of preferences, of the expression of their will. So there's a very strong emphasis on the individual. And the, what the book is really trying to do is emphasize how capacity is interpersonally situated it is situated within some kind of intersubjective dialogue you know so the dialogical conditions in which one is placed um, matter how one communicates matters Um, it is so and it's really to also displace this emphasis on the individual that is being questioned about their capacity, impaired capacity, or the assertion of their legal capacity, et cetera, and to really examine what are the conditions, the social conditions, the dialogical conditions that facilitate the competencies in order to make some make a decision um, when you have conditions of, of embodied impairment of some kind.
1: Yeah, and so then I think that your argument comes through that you're right, that mental capacity must be conceived of as a relational concept that can be enhanced through intersubjective dialogue. Can you explain more what you mean by this?
2: So I I suppose it's very simply stated in some ways that we don't, we tend to perceive that reasoning is all within one's head. You know, that I am going to deliberate about what I'm going to have for breakfast, what I'm going to wear, and these are all the, you know, my own preferences and this is my own process I go through a process of deliberation that is somehow removed from the social context within removed from my relational conditions but um, if you just even think about that preference about what you wear today about how that could also be um, that is, that is situated within certain conditions. So when you're, I'm, because I have young children, and I'm just thinking about that, at some point when they w- will express a preference for wearing some, uh, you know, a wholly in- inappropriate piece of clothing, you know, I will be a person influencing their decision around what they wear. So this is a very mundane example but if you think of the more even more profound questions about um, whether one has uh, is, is make a decision about refusing treatment based on their religious convictions um, and they've grown up with certain religious commitments you know what we have to also we have to always determine how do those relational conditions and those um, how do they impact on the formation of one's preferences, the formation of one's values, and the expression of those of those values through one's decisions.
1: Yeah, and um, and that makes sense. Um, so I just want to try and sort of sum up a little the overarching arguments in the book. And again, please, like, tell me if I'm, like, way out of line or do correct me. So the f- sort of first argument... Um, you write that an individual's environment particularly one surrounding relationships affects one's ability to make decisions and so you sort of touched on this just a moment ago in this space you argue that supportive environmental relational features will cultivate autonomy competencies within individuals with impairments namely a range of socially acquired perceptual psychological or sorry, yeah psychological emotional and cognitive skills Necessary to engage with the world and make choices in accordance with one's values. Conversely, the absence of supportive relationships and environments or the presence of abuse, manipulation and coercion can't fundamentally disable individuals' decisional abilities. Do you want to talk first to this point and then we can sort of move to the other arguments? So...
2: That, that argument really is informed by um, a lot of work in, in feminist philosophy, for example, because, um, because there is an emphasis on looking at the social context and the, and the process of socialization in which one's autonomy competencies are developed. Here I'm heavily influenced by the work of Diana Myers, um, whom I think wrote a brilliant book uh, about this, about um, her account of relational autonomy. And it's really to emphasize how we tend to think of autonomy as an achievement, an individual achievement, that one, it's it's sort of um, manifest in one's uh, assertion of one's will or or certain, mastery of one's will in some form right so that you in, in you might have conflicting preferences for example but you you override them with a uh, more long-standing desire um for example or or you make a decision based on your val- long-standing values you know etc but it's seen as a kind of individual achievement and the the point about that that i'm trying to make in that argument which is really as i said following diana Mars, is about how we cultivate certain competencies that allow us to make autonomous decisions and this is this occurs within context this can occurs in a context where we can be supported we can be um, properly um, provided with the the narratives that 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 provide self-esteem and and allow us to cultivate an authentic sense of self Um, but equally we could be in situations where uh, where our relationships um, are barriers to that Um, and we actually cultivate an inauthentic self a self that is fundamentally just in a reflection a reflection of 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 our relationships our toxic relationships for example and i mean i I think that this is kind of a a long-standing interest of mine around the influence of trauma and and how this can impact our Form, the formation of our desires and our preferences and our values and real and and to probe that question about well is that an is that an authentic self this self is it you know the preferences and desires and and values are all egocentric as in consistent with one another but they reflect um, very, very toxic narratives or toxic relationships and um, and they've been internalised. And so those can be real barriers to the, the expression and the formation of autonomy competencies.
1: And I think that really leads into the sort of next main argument where you talk about in some cases um, third-party interventions may actually be justified, for example, in cases of disabling relationships. Um, but And you're right that these interventions must be justified and carried out with certain ethical constraints. Do you want to talk more to this point also? So I don't think
2: that there is a, it's a free-for-all um, in terms of the kind of interventions that are permissible. They, they, are, they have to be constrained by a, a kind of a telos or an aspiration towards the promotion of autonomy competencies and, and, and en- enabling... Um, the development of those competencies, of be, being in, in a situation where one is um, is is able to develop those. Um, I I think that there was one case I cite in the book, and I can't for the life of me can't remember this at this point. But um, it, there was a really lovely example of this young man who had a a real dependency on his mother, but you know he was forced to basically stay in a corner of their their um. A, a homeless shelter, effectively, I think, and uh, and he could not move, so he had to urinate and defecate in the same position. In all this, and um, and there was a, a, a case which was trying to determine whether it was permissible to remove him from this these conditions under the uh, the MCA, and he at that time had expressed that how much he had wanted just to stay with his mother and how much he had been attached to his mother, and. But they they ended up removing him, and he ended up being in a far better situation where he was able to flourish as a, a self. You know, a flourish flourishes and develop his own independent preferences. He wanted to have a girlfriend. He wanted, and it was just so. So it's but it's it's not just because uh, they, the, you're trying to impose your own vision about how their life ought to be, in substantive terms, that this person ought to be you know, X, but in some respects to just enable them the the possibilities of developing those competencies, those emotional, psychological um, and rational competencies to make decisions for themselves.
1: That was a really interesting case. I can't remember the name either, but um, the situation that the man was in was really quite sad. So um, it did raise some, like, really interesting sort of, um tensions you know he's expressing one view but you know as you say he wasn't able to flourish until he was away from that dependent and even arguably abusive relationship so so that was really interesting reading cases like that to show how this tension can play out um and then finally i mean and this goes to sort of the ethical constraints you just said it's not a free-for-all you write about um how capacity assessments themselves are intersubjectively situated and that the very manner in which these assessments are carried out can have a profound effect on the individual whose capacity is under scrutiny capacity adjudications are informed by their particular medico-judicial environment by their own traditions preconceptions and therefore are not value neutral despite their air of objectivity and then in this context interpretive skills of capacity adjudicators Hinge on the exercise of critical reflexivity within the medico judicial context, where background values and presuppositions in judgments are explicitly, oh sorry, are explicit and open to scrutiny, even if the outcome of the capacity adjudication overlaps with what we think is morally defensible. Can you talk a little bit about this, about how you know these judgments are actually not value neutral? And I do remember from your um, other book as well, this point really came through. It really struck me. Um, the mental, the book, your book on Mental Capacity Act in 2005? Um, I, I, I think that there is a temptation
2: to treat capacity assessments as a, as a kind of checklist mm. or there is a, there's also a, a temptation to think about, oh, well, I'm, I'm assessing a person's capacity and I'm kind of removed from certain dialogical conditions and I'm also certain, I'm, I'm value neutral. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't think it's conscious. I think that, but it's, it's a kind of professional standard. And we in some of our research with lawyers, we've also seen how much that permeates in the, the kind of professional culture, that, per, that perception, because it's seen as, a, as an ideal, for example. Um, and my, my point here is to really stress how one is always situated in in certain um, presuppositions. Now, here I've, I think that my my biggest influence has been the work of um, Gadamer, um, Hans, Hans Georg Gadamer, and he writes in Truth and Method about how we are all situated in an interpretive um, relationship, as it were. You know, so we cannot remove the fact that we have prejudgments or prejudice and one of the cr- critical points that he makes in that book is how we tend to think of prejudice in a quite a pejorative manner but in fact prejudice is literally pre it's what we start from the position we start from when we always are we start from somewhere and um, i think that my point there is to really stress how one has to acknowledge that you are embedded in prejudice of some kind. And part of the interpretive situation in a capacity assessment is to also be aware and reflect on one's own what, what, where one starts from and what is being evoked in one's engagement with the person who is being assessed.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. It is sort of, you could almost say, a myth of judging in the judicial system that, you know, we are able to be objective and value neutral when, I mean, we're all human and we do start from somewhere, as you say. Um, so I want to turn sort of then to two points that you've touched on um, already, the sort of internal and external challenges to the concept and the test of mental capacity. So firstly, turning to the internal challenge, you write that legal applications of the functional test often make two philosophical contestable assumptions. Firstly, that autonomy is individualistic rather than relational concept, and also that capacious reasoning is an intrapersonal rather than an interpersonal act, reflective of the individual's own cognitive processes. Both of these assumptions are inattentive to ways in which autonomy and rationality are vulnerable. To internal as well as external compulsions whereas also you've mentioned already there's this external challenge that comes from the crpd um, do you want to talk about both of these points so the internal challenge is in some
2: respects highlighting how the the functional test and the the account of how mental capacity is measured is sort of philosophically incoherent um, it is, and and what I find a little bit worrying is how legal interpretation of of a mental capacity in some ways has reinforced that that kind of perception that capacities in one's head because there is a strong emphasis in England and Wales for example about the causative nexus between the impairment of the mind and the ability to decide and so the emphasis on that causative nexus the language is very very evocative about how there is a kind of Causal connection between that impairment of one mind and the ability to decide, and in some respects, it, that is it, it's philosophically problematic because there is a lot of work that has shown how um, and that account of decision making is, um, is 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 kind of reductive and ignores a lot of um, you know the, the, the relational conditions, important features of our decision making that are just not captured in in that account. But it's also um, problematic from a phenomenological perspective, because it is in some respects not attentive to the phenomenology of impairment and about how one, um, and and the embodiment of impairment and coping and understanding and engaging with the world when one has certain impairments of the mind. And, And if one is to be attentive to that, um then you have to move away from a, a, a purely cognitive um account of capacity the in the, the external challenge comes with as you mentioned the crpd because i mean the crpd fundamentally and um, well depending on your interpretation of article 12 fundamentally questions the the validity of the notion of mental capacity and so there are obviously are divergent interpretations of article 12 but if we take the, the one that has been highly influential which is the committee's interpretation of article 12 the notion that you can have um, any mental capacity regimes any account of of, of assessing mental capacity and imposing best interests um decision making that is seen to be fundamentally invalid
1: and so this sort of picks up on the point you write later in the book or also in this section about how there's this sort of like idea, like this liberal idea. Um, I think that the CRPD committee in its interpretation of Article 12 almost picks up that, you know, this sort of like hands-off approach to autonomy. Um, and, you know, the idea is to sort of offer support but not intervene Um in any way, there's this emphasis on, you know, individual autonomy. So then in like your argument, how can you contrast um, these ideas of individual approaches to rights um, in comparison with the concept of relational rights? So the, the account of
2: relational rights, I think, challenges that notion that we can have a very, um, that we can adhere to the Public-private mm-hmm. distinction in 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 a hard and as a hard and fast rule, mm-hmm. and I think that the liberal commitment to autonomy and individual rights really has this set in stone in, in many ways. So, um, if we think about relational rights and work that has been done on relational rights, like Jennifer Nadelsky's work, she st- emphasizes how, for example, in 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 the Context of domestic abuse um, and rape and 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 you know kind of crimes against women and violence against women, um, where in order to track the problematic implications of of of, of the pri- public and private distinction. Um, We just need to look at these cases because in some respects, the public-private distinction falls away if we're thinking about how a liberal commitment to individual rights, there's a sense in which we would protect the private sphere and the domestic sphere is seen as the primary example of the private sphere. But as soon as we are interested in the implications of the law and how it affects Women, for example, then we have to question that private public distinction, in, set in the law, because the implication is that um, you know certain certain crimes, certain wrongs, are not enforceable, um, are not you, you cannot actually account for them, you cannot actually. Um, you know, it's not possible given the fact that it's seen to be in this sphere of the private as opposed to what is legitimately within the public sphere and is, um, and, and is worthy of inter- intervention.
1: So then I think um, my next question hints at what you're just sort of saying now. Can you talk then about how a relational analysis of rights can actually promote decisional capacity? I think that it means that we are more attentive to our
2: place and our role in affecting decisional capacity um, i think that the strong the, the emphasis as i mentioned in this book is to focus on how we as a community might affect the decision making of individuals um, and it and, you know it, it i think it's it's kind of in, in that respect i think it's a, quite a global argument about how um, we all are affected by our communities and our relationships. And um, <clears throat> so if we're thinking about the context of rights and promoting um, the decisional autonomy of individuals, then we have to think about how w- what our narratives are, how we are um, communicating and interpreting certain individuals that are seen to have um, we, we seem to have impairments of some kind and um, we have to be attuned to those to certain perceptual cues we have I think there's just what it what it what it means is that there's more, far more work to be done on our part to promote the autonomy the decisional autonomy and capacity of, of other individuals
1: yeah and that makes perfect sense um so then sort of applying this theory maybe we can talk now a little bit about um some of the examples that you gave in the book and how you applied uh, this sort of philosophy and how it's uh, just to show how it sort of plays out. So one of the cases you gave was of Anne, a young woman who struggled uh, with anorexia nervosa. Um, and, and then there was also Rob who experienced his first serious schizophrenic episode as a 17-year-old. And he may have been the person in the uh, book who became the subject of the relationship of dependency and helplessness and reliance on his mother so that was um that you mentioned earlier and then there was also joan the older woman who was living in a care home because she had dementia now she seems to undergo almost a major shift in her perhaps her personality but certainly also her values and relationships Um, i remember you wrote about you know she was a very i think conservative a uh, woman who really valued her marriage. But then when she had dementia, she sort of wanted to, um, break out of that mold. So I'm wondering if you can sort of apply some of these arguments in some of these cases a little bit.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So I think, I mean, to to go back to the example of um, Anne, and I think that, that that's the example that really interests me um i mean all of them do but that one is is partly because in in this case i think the way that i set it up is that um her and, and i think it's also commonly a- attributed to people with anorexia is that they their reasons are egocentronic that their reasoning is very very consistent so it fulfills all the conditions in which we might um Think apply in a functional test of a capacity that she would she would pass this and I think um, Applebaum has written about this as well, um, but one of the things, one of the features in that case study was about how her her family context was highly, Mm -hmm. um, highly demanding. And there was a certain context where she was consistently told she wasn't good enough. It was, you know, so there are certain toxic narratives that surrounded her and reinforced this sense of, you know, her needing to be thin. I think there was a a lot of pressure for her to be in ballet or something. Mm -hmm. I think I I wrote something along those lines. Um, And I think that the way that one would apply my, philosophy in that case is to think about the impact and to assess the impact of those narratives and and because on the on the on the face of it her reasoning is purely can is, is consistent you know and it's a, just if if we were to think about the functional test in in a very you know, simplified form the stripped back form that you know that that we can see the the mca for example in england and wales um, it would be hard to say that she she lacks capacity to refuse mm-hmm. treatment. Um, all her, it, her reasoning to refuse treatment is aligned with her values. It's aligned with her vision of herself. Um, but I think that the, with, with the, the, the tools that I'm trying to, um, to advocate for, that I, I, I argue for in the book, is to suggest that we have to look beyond that just that discrete dec- mode of deliberation at that point. We have to think about the broader context in which well, how, how have her narratives been developed? I mean, you know, what is her sense of self um, expressing? Is it expressing a kind of authentic vision of herself? Um, is it, has she even had the opportunity to develop a sense of, yeah. of an authentic self that is premised on certain I think substantive conditions um you know and i I talk about the substantive conditions later on in the book about these nurturing relations to the self and um and i think that this does not mean in the first instance that you always intervene you know i I think that there are but it it, it does mean that the scope of our inquiry is broadened so that we at least try to understand the context in in much more detail and think about it as relevant to the assessment itself.
1: And then this relates to this idea that, um, that you know, patient autonomy has become dominant. So you cite Paul Brute-Wolf and you write that patient autonomy has now emerged as the most powerful principle in ethical decision-making in medicine, but that respect for patient autonomy requires specific conditions. So can you talk about maybe the implications on this emphasis on autonomy in decision-making?
2: I think in the context of the law, I mean, we can see mm. that in the, um, the, you know, certain interpretations of the of Article 12 and the CRPD, the strong emphasis on will and preferences, the expression of individual will and preferences and exceeding to those will and preferences, regardless of the content. Um, and I think that it, that is also, you know, evident in some, you know, in, in some cases where we're have a strong emphasis on how, what an individual expresses, and that kind of being the last word. Um, What I'm, there's also a problem, and I don't write about it in this, uh, in this book, but I mean, some further work that I have done is looking at the concept of what it means to make a peace-centric decision for an individual in the context of mental capacity law, because there is a strong emphasis on well, we're, we're going to have our, deci- our best interest in decision making is peace centric, and uh, the proceedings are peace centric. But there's very little understanding about what that actually means in substantive terms. Often, it is just seen as equivalent to well, we we need to adhere to the wish the, the wishes and feelings the preferences of the individual and that's kind of the last word yeah. but in some respects that is um a, a fairly reductive account of what our obligations are to individuals in these circumstances and peace centricity really means something far deeper about the kind of moral orientation that we uh, approach in, uh, in which we approach an individual it, it reflects the interpretive situation the inter mm-hmm. how we interpret and understand individuals are we you know, so so I think that there's there's far more um, that is required. And the, the problem with, uh, you know, this adherence to autonomy is just the kind of last word is that we, A, we, we don't ever start from a very enriched account of autonomy. That's part of the problem. But B, then when we do assume that we have, um, you know, that autonomy is our... our our lodestar as it were you know there are, are, it it means that other ethical obligations and um and and duties to the individual just sort of fall away yeah. um and i think we also find this when we think about individuals who are found to have capacity and then they are effectively left to um, languish in their own situation. And I mean, the, the, that has hap- That has emerged in some of our interview data that we, I mean, it's not related to the book, but it's related to the project that I currently run. Um, it has also emerged, uh, I think there was a, uh, a submission in one of the, the reports in the House, of, the House of Lords post-scrutiny report, where there was a worry about how capacity and the finding capacity means that individuals are basically left to their own devices and they're not provided the support that they they are entitled to and they require um, in order for them to flourish.
1: Yeah, and I think that was a really interesting point um, that, you know, supporting autonomy, just to sort of like oversimplify a bit, but supporting autonomy doesn't necessarily mean this sort of hands-off approach in every case. Um so then, can you tell me a little bit about, about this concept of absorbed coping? Um, it's not something I was really familiar with, but I found it really interesting.
2: So I have a, a long-standing interest in phenomenology, and mm. uh, um, and the, the, there's some wonderful work that has been done um, in the in this tradition uh, by Dreyfus and um, Samuel Toads, and um, and the account of absorbed coping is to really push back on, the, on, on the, the assumption that valid coping, valid knowing, valid engagement with the world requires kind of cognitive rational thought. In some ways it is to, to reclaim the pre-cognitive space in which we cope and understand and engage with the world and say that that actually is a valid way of understanding and knowing the world in its own right. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about the, I I use this example because I'm a keen gardener, I love gardening. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking about, you know, the kind of automatic actions that you do as a gardener, that you yep. don't think about them. Um, yep. And you you know, when I'm placing a spade in the ground, I don't think that I need to place it in the ground, or I need to, mm-hmm. I need to, or I hit a root and I need to move it. I don't think this. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of my skill as a gardener comes with just knowing and doing these actions automatically. Mm-hmm. And why absorbed coping is so important in the context of, of impairment, in my view, is because it, it It identifies how alternative ways of of knowing and engaging with the world that from from the outside might not look like they are engaging in any reflective thought might, in fact, reflect very, very knowing and, um, you know, way skillful ways of engaging with the world. I mean, I, I, I go. I use a lot of examples from the reason I jump and Naoki Higashida's work, and it's just he, his his work is wonderful in that regard to really highlight how his the, the impact of his impairment, but how this me how this it manifests itself in a different way of engaging with the world physically, with time, with the kind of phenomenological. Um, the grounding the, our are phenomenological grounding when we think about space and time right and how this our his body engages with these aspects these conditions of experience in an entirely different way and then i i also think about um examples of trauma because if we think about examples of severe trauma and you know where um y- you have conditions of say unstable uh, emotional um dysregulation right and there and a lot of self-harming for example mm-hmm. these are actual coping behaviors yeah. and it is important to actually acknowledge that these are coping behaviors rather than mm-hmm. they, they might be we might say that they're at the end of the day dysfunctional or harmful to the individual mm-hmm. but you have to actually validate those modes of coping and engaging with the world because they reflect a way of of navigating and negotiating the world in a successful way for the individual and their embodiment and their experience.
1: Yeah. I really enjoyed reading, um, about, uh, the book, uh, the reason I jump, I'm sorry, I've forgotten how to pronounce the, um, author's name. Um, but yeah, it's just so interesting. I, I think the protagonist was, he, he had autism. Um, and, um, yeah, it was really, really interesting to read about that and um, how, you know, this concept of absorbed coping actually, um, how it works and applies. So yeah, that was really great. And I, you're in, uh, your sort of example of gardening, I found really interesting just now too. Um, I'm a keen runner. And so I feel exactly the same. You know, I don't think about all the motions that I'm going through. You just sort of do. And it is your way of sort of being in the world and existing and coping and reacting um and and the thing is is that if you injected thought
2: into hmm. it that would also reflect that you are not as skillful as a runner as you yeah. should be yeah. yeah so it's in some respects that 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 kind of those automatic adjustments that we make shows how skillful we are hmm.
1: um and it's not that it's not a result of cognitive thought yeah yeah, exactly. Um, no, so that was super interesting. Um, so then I want to talk about, you know, in these sort of examples, how do we avoid, you know, paternalism? Because you know, um, people with impairments have encountered this long history of sort of paternal intervention. So how do we try and avoid this in these sort of really difficult cases? I think a lot depends on the the competencies of
2: of those who are intervening, really. I mean, and I, uh, um, because there might be justification for those interventions. So there might be strong ethical and strong legal reasons why there mm-hmm. is an intervention. Um, and in, in some ways that, you know, the argument to to set aside, well, not necessarily set aside, but to question the this hard and fast private and public distinction mm-hmm. is precisely to... Um, to say that there are scope there is scope for legitimate intervention but yeah. how you avoid paternalism is in some ways with your orientation your interpretive orientation your own ethical orientation as an intervener and that's why i i feel that the the crux of the book um, is really highlighting the what i call the hermeneutic competencies of assessors of those who are involved in best interest decision making because it is it all comes down to certain skills and competencies of those individuals and and there's not enough emphasis on that as opposed to just focusing well this needs to be done x needs to be done but there's not a lot of discussion about well how and why and Mm -hmm. um and what what kind of um what is my stand, stance and my orientation towards this individual as I am intervening, as I'm assessing?
1: So maybe can you talk a little bit more and expand upon some of the ethical duties of support and intervention? So I
2: think that the, the, obviously the duties have to be within the, the appropriate constraints of what is it for? you know that, that, mm-hmm. So the end point has to be, in some respects, um, respectful of the individual you know so that's the the whole idea about intervention has to be one where you're promoting autonomy competencies not one that where you are just placing them in another situation where they're only going to be cultivate other dependencies yes. and um and not actually be allowed to find their own voice or cultivate their own voice so that i think that is one aspect that is is it, a major constraint you, you know what how, what, are, what is our intervention for? But they also, I think, have to be within a, a framework of respect in so far as that, you know, individuals are seen as that they're given some deliberative standing, you know, that they are shown deliberative respect even in that process. So one of the, um, you know, so for example, individuals who might, we, we saw this in some of our fieldwork for our, or not our fieldwork, our interviews um, in in the project that i currently run how important it is for individuals even if they know that the 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 decision the final decision is not in not the one that they wanted not the one that they favored and they um but if they're shown deliberative respect throughout the process by um by the by the various lawyers by the judge in the end That they will be far more receptive to that decision because they have been shown some kind of standing throughout that that process which is a very alienating and difficult process so i think those are you know major conditions in which one has to adhere to you know that um you have to show that individual that they have a certain moral standing in these proceedings
1: and then so you identify this sort of catch-22 uh, situation in the recognition of decisional support. And it, it's almost a little controversial. Um, on the hand, you know, the social model of disability emphasises universal legal capacity by protection of negative liberties and civil rights of people with impairments. But on the other hand, and Tom Shakespeare has also identified this, that even once social barriers to disability have been removed, there may be residual difficulties intrinsic to a person which can affect the extent of a person's disability. Now the social model doesn't really seem to deal with this point um, that at times supporting autonomy may effectively require intervention. You've talked a bit about this, but can you elaborate a bit more on this sort of catch twenty two situation?
2: I think it is controversial, and so mm-hmm. I don't want to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I, no, and I don't. I don't want to. Uh, you know. I think that the the language that I use in the book is already indicative about my position on it mm-hmm. in some respects because, um, and I, and I and I don't want to paint all social model um, mm. dis- of disability theorists the same way because there yep. are variations and there have been real refinements to in an effort to address Tom Shakespeare's point, mm-hmm. but I think that um, part of my issues to just really highlight how the how impairment and the kind of biological dimensions, the embodied dimensions mm. are important to consider and important to take yeah. into account. And that we, we we risk neglecting individuals and their needs if we do not actually acknowledge the reality of those effects of, the, of, of, of one's embodiment. So I I use this example about my niece, Ava, for example, who has Rett syndrome and about how if we did not really recognize and acknowledge that there are certain impairments of her body and these impairments are not value neutral. The fact that she has trouble swallowing is not a value neutral thing. It is it is it, it has profound implications in her life and it's not a desirable thing, but it doesn't mean that we define her based on that yeah. but it means that in order to treat her properly to 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 attend to her needs appropriately we have to always be mindful of how her 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 embodiment can lead to certain limitations and be mindful of it and be attentive to it um and and that's the way that we actually don't define her by her disability yeah. in some respects because we we recognize that you know Ava's far more than her her uh, um, her limitations, but we have to see her limitations also as constitutive of her, of, of who she is in some ways. Mm-hmm. That 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 is part of who she is. We accept who she is, but we have to attend to it and be um, proactive about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did really enjoy reading about um, your niece Ava. She sounded just so lovely, and it was just a really nice way um, to sort of make what you write about really real. Um, so now, a sort of another argument from another side comes um, from care theory, and I think Jonathan Herring writes about this. Can you talk a little bit of, more about care theory and perhaps the merits and any limits that you see? So, uh, I mean, uh,
2: it, it is interesting because I, I did engage with Jonathan Herring's approach, rather than the actual care theorists, mm-hmm. and I think some care theorists might say that I, you know, I should have engaged more directly with their, <laughs> but um, I think my my choice was partly because I wanted to uh, look at how it's been applied to the law, but my my problem, I mean, I think care theory has strengths insofar as it does emphasise neglected dimensions that we might not think is relevant to the law you know so the importance of of the burden of care the importance of welfare you know these the importance of of the relational dimensions of of care and um these are all very important features but i think that what i don't it's a bit like autonomy i i i I don't think that anything can be reduced to a single concept, you know, that our, our, our mm-hmm. duties, our obligations, our way of understanding um, the complexities in this area of law is not reducible to a single concept. Mm-hmm. The, the other problem that I think, it, it, I think is a, it's a slight shortcoming of, of care theory is that it does tend to be, um, to be fairly reductive about the female experience. Yeah. And say because it does it was seen as a kind of feminist rejoinder by some circles to theories of justice and um, I think that that kind of lineage makes me slightly uncomfortable because I don't think that by reclaiming the domestic labor of, of women and the the fact that women are overwhelmingly um, carers and you know have the caring burden mm-hmm. um, I don't think it redresses some core fundamental issues that we should be focused on in terms of um, I mean it mean, just it just doesn't include issues of justice it doesn't include um, you know the, the the role of rationality or you know as opposed to um, care I think it's just the binary dimension of it you know care versus justice or, or, or whatnot yeah. it, it, I think it's just um, a little bit too reductive for my taste.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, really interesting. Um, it definitely gave me a lot to think about, so um, thank you. Um, I want to turn next to your chapter on he- hermeneutic competence and the dialogical conditions of capacity. Can you first um, explain for the audience what hermeneutic competence is? Very simply, it
2: is the, it, 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 these competencies and her- hermeneutic competence captures the competencies that are required for individuals who are capacity are the capacity assessor, or mm. for you know, basically those in, who are embedded in those relational conditions to enhance and enable individuals and their decision making capacity. In some respects, then we are all we all need to cultivate hermeneutic competence. But what I am trying to articulate here is the specific um, skills, the specific competencies that are required in. In acknowledging certain impairments of some kind, and 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 what kinds of skills are required mm. in these conditions, and
1: also the. Cons- and so, oh, oh sorry, sorry.
2: Go and, on. no, you go, yeah. on, please. And I, and, I th- and I should also um, s- um, preface it also is that I mean the, the whole notion of hermeneutics and hermeneutic mm. it, it's I mean it stems from. This again, this Gadamerian notion that we are in an interpretive situation always. You know, we are always, we are always embedded in some kind of interpretive context, and so we can interpret and understand well, and we can we can equally do this very badly, and so it is trying to articulate how we interpret and understand others well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that makes sense. So then can you talk also about the dialogical conditions of capacity? So
2: the dialogical conditions of capacity, I think, I mean, it stems again from um, Gautamer and what I mm-hmm. take, what, how I apply his philosophy, which is to think about how, about our prejudgments, you know, mm-hmm. so with, with Gadamer, when he talks about dialogue and the and how we engage in dialogue, he says that um, our prejudgments our prejudices effectively come into play and they are they and, and his notion of play is where they also become they become up for grabs effectively yeah. that we we, we, we we find ourselves shifting constantly because our prejudices are up for grabs and we're putting them at risk effectively in these dialogical conditions. So, you know, for example, um, if I was to think about my, my niece, Ava, you know, Mm -hmm. if I was thinking about the dialogical conditions, I would say that I might, when I engage with her for the very first time, and I have no idea about how to engage with someone who is non-verbal and makes noises to express themselves. My, my prejudgment, my initial prejudgment is that might be, well, oh, um, you know ava must be very very stupid you know because she cannot use language and she you know she doesn't actually have values um but to to actually attend and 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 question my prejudgment is to say, to say well as i engage with her more and more and as i open myself more and more to her way of knowing and experiencing the world the more that my prejudgment that more that that prejudice is is no longer, it might be questioned, it might be, well, actually, my, my way of understanding the world, my way of understanding her, my way of understanding how people might engage and experience the world is shift has shifted, Is changed through that dialogical engagement with, with Ava. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, it really does.
1: <laughs> no, no, it really does. Um, like, just to sort of sum it up, it's sort of about, I think, um, questioning one's own pre-judgment um, in making assessments,
2: and it's, yeah. it's also recognizing that you are, you have those. Mm. You know, to say yeah. that the idea that you do not have those mm. is not a valid assumption in this case. So, in, in some respects, the dialogical conditions. Of, of, you know, to, to express that kind of skillful ability to understand and interpret someone, you have to be mindful that I have these prejudgments, I have these assumptions. Um, Sir Mark Headley, in his wonderful book called The Modern Judge, he he writes very eloquently about the fact that you know, as a judge in the welfare jurisdiction, he knows that he has these values. He knows that he has these prejudgments, and in some ways, these are they, they are unavoidable, and they can be unproductive. They can be, actually be a barrier to understanding somebody. But they also equally can be productive sources of knowledge, um, and the and, and in some respects, being aware of the fact that one is has these enables one's prejudgments and prejudices to be productive sources of of advancing knowledge and advancing understanding
1: yeah that makes perfect sense and that certainly sounds like it should be compulsory reading for uh, not just people who work in welfare jurisdictions but i think anyone who aspires to be a lawyer to recognize that they do have prejudgments um, and to be aware of these um, so then just sort of bringing all your points together, in your final chapter on rethinking capacity, you sort of sum up with some key points. And it, um, please correct me. Um, I've tried to sort of very briefly sum up. But so firstly, you argue that autonomy must incorporate phenomenological relational dimensions. Second, you write that the competence of those around individuals with impairments matters. Next, you argue that the content of self-constituting narratives matters. The fourth key point is that the boundary between capacity and best interests is blurry and elastic. And finally, you make the point that capacity as a socially situated relational and dialogical concept transforms the role of the capacity assessor. Now, I know this is sort of like a very big question and it touches on so many issues, Um, but I'm wondering if you can just sort of draw these key points together.
2: Gosh, that's that's a challenge.
1: (laughs) It's like it's basically the whole book, um, so I apologize.
2: I I mean, I I think that perhaps, you know, one way to think about it is how how this transforms our ideas of capacity in practice as well as conceptually. So I think that one of the key points is that we tend to think about capacity as uh, a cliff edge right you have capacity or you don't but um an important feature of taking into consideration the relational conditions of capacity of also understanding one's own role in facilitating capacity or or being a barrier to capacity means that um that boundary is is far more fluid and the scope for intervention is a little bit more fluid but what that means is that the justification for intervention, the justification behind defining a capacity, has to be far more robust and transparent. About and and also being um, reflexive about how one has 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 engaged in that encounter, as it were. How has one um, interpreted what has been said or expressed? Uh, you know, through words, through bodily action, through emotion. Um, how has one tried to understand um, and engage with the individual? Um, I think effectively, if I was to tie it all together, it just makes capacity, um, the role of capacity assessment, um, the, the the findings of capacity assessment, it, it, it makes it far more demanding. Yep. Um, it, it, the 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 justification the grounding for it, it is is far more demanding than we might envisage and it is also the case if I was to summarize all of those points um, it is to say that there are no simple answers and that I and, and that's a very very mm-hmm. you know it's a typical academic response to practice to practice and you know and and practical um practitioners and judges and et cetera, they will all probably say, well, we, at the end of the day, we have to make a decision. And so mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it has to be in some way simplified. Mm-hmm. But I think a large part of this project about this, about this book, about what I've done subsequently has been to stress that there is so much nuance and complexity in this area. And we do ourselves a disservice and we also do a, a huge disservice to the individuals who are affected by this legislation, mm-hmm. by, by our concepts of mental capacity, etc. when we try to sim- oversimplify yeah. the conceptual and, and normative terrain. And, um, and part of, of recognising and grappling with that nuance and complexity is to learn to be comfortable with that complexity mm-hmm. learn to be comfortable with that discomfort in some ways and to think about how how am i embedded in my own values and my own you know in my own interpretive situation how how do i understand others and you know and that's an ongoing process it is a skill that requires constant work and no one, you know, you just constantly improving on it. But it is always you're always in different situations that require different skills, adaptiveness. And, um, and I think that's really the crux of it. Um, but it is, it is to highlight how demanding that role is, it is not going to lead to simple answers and, um, and simple, simple principles.
1: Yeah, and I, I think identifying that there are no simple answers and um, really focusing on the nuances and recognising them and the complexities does actually move us forward rather than the sort of knee-jack reaction to oversimplify, which I think does take place in courts, um, by way of necessity or not. But I, I do think, yeah, this is all, like, it's really important to recognise And so now, Camilla, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, um, the final and traditional New Books Network question: What are you working on now?
2: So I have. um, I think I mentioned in your previous (laughs) podcast how um, currently that I'm I'm still leading the Judging Values project, and we are. Currently, um, doing some very exciting work around training and communication for uh, legal practitioners. i um, we'll hopefully have a video that will be coming out soon that will be open access and everybody can access it if they're interested. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm also, uh, you know, really just doing some further work on this. You know, in this area, very. I think this is a, a, a an area where you never really stop um examining certain questions and i think i mean the 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 biggest one that has um that, that has been interesting me um lately has been about how do we understand and attribute intentionality to people with profound communication um barriers and and how you know how do we understand that those conditions and um and validate expressions effectively of, of people who who really struggle to communicate. So I'd, I'd like to do some further work on that, um, but yeah, we'll see.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds really interesting. And I mean, anyone listening, I would definitely recommend both of Chameleon's books that I've read. Um, the first on a previous podcast um, was on the Mental Capacity Act in 2005. And what I loved about that is it takes all these really complex theories and it applies them in practice um so yeah it really sounds like the work you're doing now will be really really relevant but of course today we've been talking about camelia kong's um other book mental capacity in relationship decision making dialogue and autonomy it was published by cambridge university press in 2017 um camelia kong thank you so much for your time thank you